This is episode three of Hypercritical, a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing is so perfect that it can't be complained about, at least not by uh, John Syracuse, who's my co-host, and, uh, and I'm Dan Benjamin. We'd like to thank our sponsors. Uh, we're sponsored by Sound Studio 4, which lets you record, edit, and produce your audio using an easy-to-use Mac application. It lets you record and edit digital audio right on your computer. You can record professional-sounding podcasts, spoken words, speeches, and music, all in high fidelity. And from your high-quality master, you can export to your favorite file formats from Wave to AAC and even uh, John Syracuse's favorite, Og Vorbis. Uh, you can get Sound Studio 4 from the Mac App Store today. Uh, and by MailChimp.com, powerful email marketing. MailChimp lets you send 6,000 emails per month to a list of up to 1,000 subscribers absolutely free. And even better, they've been working with some of the best designers on the web to create beautiful email templates that anyone can use, even John. So whether you're a designer or you don't have any experience at all, you just plug in your content and that's it. Check them out at MailChimp.com. John Syracuse, how are you? Doing just fine. Friday afternoon, noon, noon o'clock. Yep. And uh, as usual, uh, we have some topics lined up, but we wanted to start, and this, this seems like a, a theme because you told me ahead of time, you said already, Dan, I already have some, some follow-up on last week's show. So maybe that's how we should start off every show with a little bit of follow-up from the previous week's show, something you, you want to complain about. Yeah, I guess it, it depends on what we talk about because I bet when we do the shows, we're just like speculating about the future of Apple stuff or whatever. Maybe there won't be so much follow up. But anytime we do a practical show talking about, you know, things you can do on your computer, inevitably there's, I mean, there's tons of chat that I miss during the show. And then there's email and Twitter and there's always just stuff to follow up on. Uh, so the backup show was no different. Got a lot, a lot of feedback on that. Uh, and uh, I asked some questions during the show that people answered afterwards, so I just wanted to, to follow up on that because not everybody reads my Twitter stream or reads the show notes or whatever. Right, so let's let's get that out of the way first. Shame on everybody who doesn't follow John on Twitter because John only has like a couple thousand followers, which is weird because you have, you know, every time you do a post on ours, you're going to get 100,000 readers that afternoon, so... You, people can can follow you on Twitter, Syracusa. There's, there's Syracuse, no Z, right? That, no Z sound, and definitely no Z letter as well. All right, S I R A C U S A. And I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter, and people should know that already. But it, follow John, and then you can interact. John actually reads his Twitter, and he responds to you. Yeah, that's the nice thing about not having a lot of followers is that I can actually respond to a reasonable <laughs> percentage of the people who reply to me who aren't spam bots, right? But Twitter, Twitter is weird, like with a number of followers. Like some people have just huge numbers of followers all out of proportion to like the amount of time that they tweet or, you know, there's like celebrities who tweet once a month, right? right. And they have a million followers. Well, it's because they're a celebrity. So it's, it's kind of like, I can't, I don't know. I don't know. I can't figure out anything online that's similar to it. But people are following to express their their appreciation for the person. And if it's a famous person, lots of people like them. So by following the thing, they're saying... I really like, you know, celebrity XYZ. But then they never read that person's tweets or maybe they never use Twitter again or if that celebrity doesn't tweet more than three times a year, they they forgot that they follow them. But it, it seems like it's just a measure of name recognition more than a measure of the people who are good to follow. So when Twitter tries to recommend people, it, it gives recommendations based on similar follows and stuff. But it, mm. there's no way to express like, yeah, I follow this person, but I also like their tweets. I find their tweets informative, you know? A lot of the people I follow have very few followers, but 
I feel like the content of their tweets is, you know, tailored just for me. Whereas some people I follow who have millions of followers and I would not rate them as highly as the, the uh, other people that I follow. Well, John, it also seems like there's a threshold uh, as far as, as far as the, the whole following phenomenon. And it, it seems to, to work that the people who have a, an, a modest number, a high number, but a modest number of followers like, like you and anywhere in that 10,000 range, you're right up there. It seems like at that point you can still communicate pretty well with the people that, that follow you it, it's not overwhelming. You don't, you know, you, you can, you can respond and you're, but there's enough people that you're not going to say, Oh, got a nice haircut today. You know, you, you're aware that there's a, an audience there, but then when you, when you get, I, I've noticed that when you get into that hundred thousand range, which seems to be the next big threshold, uh, it's almost impossible to tweet without upsetting somebody. I don't really care about upsetting people, but even with my meager following that I have, I do feel some responsibility to ha- if you were to look back at my Twitter stream, I want it to be like what you would expect. So I think what people expect when they follow me is for me to talk about Mac, Apple, tech, news, gaming stuff. Occasionally I'll sneak one in there about, you know, my kids or whatever. But for the most part, it's not going to be, you know, a stream about what I ate for dinner uh, a particular day or anything it's just the majority of it is going to be mac nerd tech news because that's what i think people are expecting when they follow me so i do feel that responsibility i felt that even when i had like 300 followers because you just don't want to annoy other people with trivial stuff you know no i'm with you and i I I never knew you were so concerned you know people get upset about everything and that really doesn't bother me if someone has a legitimate point and they're also upset that's still worth responding to but i'd I don't think I would feel impaired if hundreds of thousands of people were following me and everything I said got angry responses. People get angry about everything. That's true. Including me. So, so, what, so what do you want to clear waste up? Time. Let's, yeah, let's, let's follow up on the follow it up. Uh, backup stuff. Uh, so I'm going to start out with a sad tale. Um, I, I think I mentioned this last time that my sister was having hard disk problems. I don't right. know if I did. But uh, her story has taken a turn for the worse. So she's, she has a problem with her internal drive, which I tried to debug over a remote desktop uh, and the disk utility wasn't having, uh, couldn't, couldn't fix it and so the choices are like, well, buy something like Disk Warrior or try another utility or, you know, I, I told her to take her whole Mac to the, uh, to the Apple Store and see what they could do. And they ended up replacing tons of stuff like the motherboard and the hard drive oh, and all wow. those things like that. And I had her, you know, a FireWire attached time machine drive but then she told me that her FireWire external hard drive had gone bad months ago. And so oh, she man. she didn't do anything about it because a regular person, you know, oh that you know they, they see that box attached and they know that I told them they have to keep it plugged <laughs> in and blah 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 and they know that it's for backup purposes. And they understand, <laughs> right? They understand that you know this is my. But then they just don't think they just don't think it through. It's not that important to them. So when their internal drive goes bad, <laughs> they, you know, and you explain to them, well, you see that backup drive that's been broken for a month, uh, that. Mm-hmm. Was your safety net yeah. for the internal drive, and now you have two broken drives, and you know all her pictures of her kids and all her movies and everything are on these two broken drives. So now she's at the mercy of mm. you know drive savers, which is quoting her like anywhere from seven hundred dollars to twenty five hundred dollars to restore from either one of those discs. Have you ever used a service like that? I never have, thankfully, but I I, I would if I had to. Like if if I, all I had was you know like she does two damaged disk drives with all of my pictures of my kids in them, I would pay almost anything to get those things off of there. Um, but the fact she's looking into that now is like 
she, she's notoriously a cheapskate about buying technology stuff. She's kind of like, uh, you know, like that Seinfeld episode where the old people don't want to buy batteries. So, I don't know if you've watched Seinfeld. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah, who yeah. buys batteries? Because batteries seem like such an alien thing that you shouldn't have to pay money for. Yeah. Well, same thing with her with technology. Pay so much money for a computer? It just seems silly, right? Because it's not something in her mind. That, right. But she uses it like crazy. She's on the internet all the time or whatever. It's just that people can't overcome that barrier. People have that with software too. They can't overcome the barrier of paying money for software despite the fact that they use it constantly and derive huge value from it. It's just not in the category in their mind of things they want to pay for. So now, you know, because she didn't want to bother getting that external hard drive fixed or didn't seem important enough to her or whatever, or she didn't want to pay to replace it if it was really broken, pay the 200 bucks or whatever. Now she's staring down at a, you know, 800 to 2,500 dollar bill. Wow try to get her data back and there's no guarantees on that i mean have uh, you ha, was there an opportunity to try people in the chat room are saying this too have you, you know something like disc warrior on it or was there was that was it beyond hope well that that was my suggestion to her. she doesn't have any of these programs so i said well you're gonna have to get disc warrior and try it and you know disc warrior is 100 bucks it's still cheaper than drive savers but there's no guarantee i mean this could be two failed mechanisms she's had them for years yeah. and the other thing is disc warrior is potentially I don't know. They say it's not. They say it's going to rebuild your directory index separately and not write a single thing to your disk until it's sure that it can restore it exactly. But I always get wary of using a software product to try to fix a disk when it is literally my only repository for this data. You know, if if I had backups and stuff, I would try to restore it. And you know, in the old days, like Norton Utilities or something, would bring your disk back to a consistent state, but you'd lose a folder or two, or you'd lose a couple of files, or you know, any files that are on those damaged blocks or something, you might lose them. And when this is your only copy, or potentially your only copy, I, I really would rather have, you know, drive savers scour the disk with whatever crazy machines they have and just pull every single byte off of there um, and just restore everything in a non-invasive way. So this, this brings up a question, though, and this is something that, that you identified on the last show. A very, very good advice is that everybody needs to know that hard drives fail. And it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when whether it's a year or or less or whether it's a couple of years you know that that's a legitimate concern but should you be thinking about that i mean if you have a computer that's 3 years old should you be saying to yourself in the back of your mind this hard drive is probably going to fail sometime soon i use this thing 8 hours a day every day it's been for you know 3 something years this thing's going to go the same way that you can go and you say to your you know oh man we we put 50,000 miles a year on this car after after a certain amount of time, the tires are going to need to be replaced. The brakes are going to need to be replaced. It's just stuff you need to do. Should you think of it like that? I think if you go down that road, that's what makes you. That's probably what made my sister say, "Oh, this is a new computer. It's it's a flat screen iMac, maybe two generations ago, but in her mind, it's still a new computer." So I think it'll be fine. You have to have your backup plan in place from day one, and not wait until you get that nagging feeling like you would with an old car, because people are not good at getting that feeling about computers you know and she's a great example she still considered this her new computer because her old iMac was one of those lampshade ones uh, <laughs> right with the bendable neck so you, yeah. that's that's her old that's iMac old this one. is clearly this is clearly the new one so of course the new one's not going to break that's i think what was making her not take action on getting her backup hard drive fixed which is like well you know it was a backup but so what this is the new iMac i'm sure it'll be fine so i don't think you can rely on that feeling uh you have to really have your backups from day one going and then you, you might still get that feeling i certainly do and maybe that'll make you a little bit extra vigilant about your backups, maybe increase the frequency. You know, like I would increase the frequency of my super duper backups if I felt like my hard drive was three years old or something. Yeah. But you, you can't rely on that. You just have to assume that any second it's going to go bad and you have to have a plan for it. 
Well, I talked to Dave Nanian this morning. Uh, apparently, he's been, you know, touring or what? I don't know. You know, whatever he does. He travels and stuff. Skiing in the Alps or something. Yeah, like something like that. And I, I asked him if he had listened to last week's uh, Hypercritical, and he said, no, I haven't listened. I've been, I've been, you know, I was on the slopes or whatever the software developers get to do. And uh, and I said, you know, you need to listen to it because we talk about Super Duper quite a bit in it. And I've had a lot of people over the last week asking me about that product in particular uh, but I wanted to get your take. So if, if I had to get a recommendation from you, do you think that cloning is better? And I know this is a hard question to answer. Is cloning better than incremental backups in general from your perspective? For the regular, I'm talking for the regular person. I don't think it is because it's not built into the operating system. For uh, It's the same reason I gave last time that I was recommending Time Machine over Super Duper. Uh, because it doesn't require you to buy another piece of software, even though it's cheap and well worth the money. It doesn't require you to remember to set it up and run it and set it on a schedule or any of those things that there's so much that can go wrong for people who are not into computers getting that scenario set up. Whereas with Time Machine, literally all you have to do is the hardware, especially with a desktop. You just plug it in, turn it on once, and then forget it even exists. It's not as good in time in the time of a of a, a restore, maybe, because like if you if you say all right, my main hardware goes bad. I want to be able to reboot into a working system within 15 minutes. Super Duper is your only choice there, right? If something goes wrong and you're using Time Machine, you have to go through the whole Time Machine restore procedure. You can't boot from your Time Machine drive. You probably need to buy another hard drive. But I think this impediment is probably appropriate for regular people because you don't want them to be able to immediately boot into their secondary drive because now they're sailing without a net and a regular person would just keep using that secondary drive for months until it goes bad. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Time Machine is still my recommendation for non tech savvy non you know the people who aren't into computers they just want to use it and they want it to work i i have to go with time machine it's built in and all of the things that are annoying to geeks about it i think would actually help regular people make sure they do the right thing geeks of course should know the trade-offs and use whichever one they find is appropriate i think they would know that i've rebooted my super duper backup i missed whatever files that have been changed since then so maybe a day's worth of work. I know I'm now sailing without a net. I know I can't use this permanently. I know I need to figure out what's wrong with the internal drive and buy a new one or fix it or whatever. You know, it's totally different for people who are listeners of the show, basically. But yeah. for the for the non computer savvy listeners of the show's family, I would say Time Machine. Okay. All right. So let me let me move on. So we got a couple more follow up things here. Um, people kept asking where I said to buy hard drives from, and I guess I misspoke or wasn't clear the site I was referring to which will be in the show notes and I actually put it in last week's show notes too is storagereview.com and it's not to buy hard drives it's to research them if you are a nerd and you want to know which hard drive mechanism has the best balance of performance price capacity and noise or whatever criteria you want they have this awesome tool there with a, with a bunch of check boxes that you can compare drives on any criteria that you want and then put a big graph of them it's it's excellent. Anytime I buy a hard drive, since I mostly buy internals, I go to that site and figure out what is the the, the top drive. And they have they have these leaderboards they call them, where they say what's the best desktop hard drive you can buy, and they usually give one or two choices. And what's the best laptop hard drive? What's the best SSD? What's the best you know home theater hard drive? And I tend to shop mostly by uh, price capacity and speed, but I also always throw in noise because I'm really sensitive to that. So. I love how you how you say to the people who are listening to the show. Well, if you're nerds, you well, like I don't know. They're all nerds. I don't know who's listening. Anyone can but listen. That's not anyone. that's not an insult to call somebody a nerd in 2011. I don't know. It might still be an insult, but mm. we're all nerds. We yeah. know who we are. Yeah. 
Very true. It shouldn't be. An, it's not an insult to nerds. It's an insult to people who don't want to like to think of themselves as. So nerds. where do you buy your drives from? Yeah. So then after I research it, that just gives me a product name, and, and that site has like links to different places you can buy them and price checking things or whatever. But I tend to just go to my old standbys. I like Newegg. I have a lot of good luck with them. They have usually have good prices. Newegg.com. Uh, I buy from Amazon. I just sometimes do Google searches and sort by price and then find the first dealer that I find reputable. Uh, with a mechanism, with the hard drive mechanism, when you're buying a raw mechanism, there's nothing that comes in the box. It's just the drive. There's no cabling. There's no stuff like that. The warranty is provided by the manufacturer, not by the company that you buy through. So uh, I'm not really uh, that worried about the vendor. You just pick wherever has the cheapest price on it. You find yeah, the model as, you as want, long as it's not really fly by night, you know. Yeah, I usually go with Amazon. Yeah, that's you know, if you have Amazon Prime and you yeah. get free shipping, it's just yeah. I, Amazon Prime is the best thing in the world. If you buy one TV every three years, you, you more than pay for Amazon yeah. Prime. But something it, I think people don't know about Amazon Prime is that you can go in on it with several different people. So whatever the price is per year, you can split that among several people. Right, or you can you can give it to family members who might want to need it as, as their Christmas gift. Yeah. It's, you, if you buy any reasonable amount of stuff from Amazon during a year, you will easily make your money back. And oh, Christmas yeah. alone, you'll make it back on shipping. And yeah. it's just great because I no longer have to worry about bundling up products into multiple shipments. I mean, if I look at Newegg and the price for something, I was just actually looking this morning at, at a, a, a Western Digital Caviar Black Drive, one terabyte drive, and I think it's like 89 bucks at New egg and it's you know or eighty nine bucks at Amazon and eighty four bucks plus shipping at New Egg, but I can get free shipping at Amazon. It winds up you know, but it's it, it the drives are so competitively priced these days. It's yep, you're, you're yep. really not going to find a big difference. Okay, what's the ne- next thing on your list? Yeah, so now I've got. Uh, I was trying to remember the name of that other S three based backup service. Uh, that's a a backup service that uses Amazon's S three service for its storage. So you end up having to pay a fee for the S three storage as well as paying for the application. Right. And I couldn't remember the name of it, but uh, I looked it up afterwards, and it's ARC, A-R-Q. It's by Haystack Software. It's haystacksoftware.com slash A-R-Q. A-R-Q. And it's kind of like an indie Mac version of this, where they're concentrating 100% on the Mac. If you look at their homepage for this product, they they show how they are the only product in the ones that they list anyway that does 100% uh, save and restore of all Mac-specific metadata. Uh, There's a little program called Backup Bouncer that... It's like a benchmark uh, where they'll make a bunch of files with esoteric metadata set and you're supposed to back them up with your software and then restore it and then it will diff the two and see if you missed any flags or missed any permissions or ACLs or the millions of other things that could be in there. And their product is the only one that passes all the tests with flying colors. Nice. Um, it is a little bit more expensive because S3 charges you for you know sending and receiving and it also charges you for the permanent storage. Uh, it really depends on how much data you have, I guess, but it's not like one of those flat rate unlimited things. But it is definitely interesting, and I really like when I see a product that boasts on its homepage, we understand the Mac, we do this better than anybody. And I, I've been on the back of all these other companies you know, via Twitter or various email feedback to say, you guys have to be better about saving and restoring Mac metadata. And like I said with Backblaze, it is not good about doing that. And I'm, I'm accepting that trade-off just because uh, it's inexpensive and that's not what I, I plan on using it for. Uh, but uh, I'm definitely aware of this issue, and I just wish everybody would get better at that. Um, we could do a whole show on metadata, too. Yes, maybe that'll be a different one. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, and CrashPlan. A lot of people are talking about CrashPlan. I mentioned it on, on the other thing. I said if I was going to go from Backblaze, the first place I would look is CrashPlan. Lots of people like it. I've heard bad things about the Java client, and I've uh, the feedback I got on the show is some people agree the Java client is a little bit bloated and unmac like but other people say they've had no problems with it, and it seems snappy to them. So I guess it just depends on what your expectations are. But 
Um, the, the pricing now is very close to what uh, Backblaze has. The only downside is that I don't, don't think they have a month-to-month option. And one crash point feature that I didn't mention that a lot of people are fans of is that you can send your data to another Mac that has crash plan on it. Right. So you don't have to send it to S3 or up into their cloud thing. I think you can even do this for free with their free version. If you and your buddy both get free versions and you both have fast net connections, you can back up to each other right, over the network. Right. Or or even even if it's just you, you can back up yep. to another one in another location. You could back yep. up you could put an old Mac on, you know, on your your parents' uh, network at home or whatever and, and, and use it. You could do it on the same network. So that's, I was going to mention that too, that they do have some compelling features. The only downside, and it's really not that big of a downside, I, I have used the CrashPlan client. It's not a bad client. It doesn't necessarily feel and look and work exactly like all the, the Mac OS X apps that we're, we're used to, but it's not bad. So let's, you know, that that's a, certainly a fair alternative. And there's, the, the, I think, I think there are advantages to each, but I think uh, you're right. I don't think that they have a month-to-month. Uh, they just do the one year, I think. And they have, they have a family plan for two to ten computers for like 120 a year. Their whole year thing is about 50 bucks, which is pretty much the same as Backblaze's pricing. Uh, and they've gotten a lot better. Their pricing has gotten better. From what I've heard, their client has gotten better. And if you look at, on the Arc homepage for you know how well they do it at Mac Metadata, I believe they're still doing a lot better than Backblaze for doing Mac Metadata. So... CrashPlan seems like a solid choice. I, I always hesitate to recommend Backblaze. I mean, I use it, I like it, and I haven't had a reason to change, but CrashPlan always gets higher rated, and people seem to love it too. And just because I haven't seen a reason to switch doesn't mean you should you know, go, back, go with Backblaze just because that's what I use. Um, I'm using it for a variety of reasons that may not apply to you. So, you know, check them both out. Okay. Um, What's next? And the final thing on follow-up is encryption. Uh, I didn't mention this, uh, all, but almost all of the backup things encrypt your data. They'll, they'll, you know, they're not just shoving your sensitive files up on Amazon S3 or into their cloud things just in their raw unencrypted form so anybody could look at it. And the thing most of them do is they try to make you feel like even employees of the backup company cannot see your data. So they always have like, there's an encryption key, but there's a secondary private encryption key that only you have. And if you do a restore, then you have to enter that secret encryption key. So in theory, if, you know, if the CEO of the backup company wanted to look at your files, he couldn't do it because he doesn't have your secret encryption key. Now, in practice, it kind of wigs me out that some of these things say, when you do a web restore, just type your secret encryption key into this field on our web server. And you know, I'm, I'm sure they're not saving it. I'm sure they're being good web developers and it's not showing up in their logs. But if it's going to be a private encryption key... I'm not, I'm not going to type it into a web form on your yeah, website really. because that's not really a pro- you know, regular people don't think about this and I'm sure the sites are doing it just because it's convenient and they want web restore is an important feature to have but I wouldn't put too much stock in it so, so just assume that the company that you're backing up to will always be able to see your data despite uh, you know protestations to the contrary but in general if a, if a thief breaks into uh, the encryption company they probably won't be able to see your data everybody does 256 bit AES encryption or something like that that is you know computationally uh, unfeasible to to break for non-government entities, um, but that is an important feature of backup things. And I, I definitely wouldn't use a service that didn't have any kind of encryption. And the encryption thing led to a lot of feedback about uh, feedback about like what about File Vault, which is Apple's right. built-in encryption thing where it will encrypt your home directory. Um, I don't want to go too far off on a tangent because you're already gone kind of long on this, but maybe we should talk about encryption in a different show. Yeah. I, I actually have a link in the show notes that maybe I'll take out because we're not going to have time to talk about it today, but uh, PGP makes a whole disk encryption product that will yeah. do exactly what it says, encrypt your entire disk, and uh, I actually have to use that at work. 
Uh, it's mandatory for all the uh, computers at our company because we have healthcare information. And it's surprisingly non-evil, whereas File Vault is surprisingly evil. So that's my cap. That's my capsule review of of encryption for now. File Vault, bad. Well, whole disk encryption, not as bad. <laughs> Probably better than you think. But all encryption, there is some sort of trade-off. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what. Let uh, you, you always tell me pick a show. I'm picking it right now. I'd I'd love to talk and learn what you know about that for for next week's show. So if 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 I can, that's not a whole that's not a whole show worth of stuff. I can, we can put it in the follow up. Well, I, I, I would like to talk about that more because I think there, I think that is a whole show. Maybe if not part a, a good part of a show, we can do it because that's something I I think about a lot. And the last time that I used encryption at all, it, it there was such a performance hit on the machines that I had run it on that I, especially because which are the machines that you want to encrypt? You want to encrypt laptops. You want to encrypt the machines that are the most likely to be lifted. So those are typically also the ones that don't have as much horsepower. And this was years ago, but man, it was just, it was just a drain on these things. Yeah. Encryption. That's just the nature of you. You you nailed it exactly. You always want to encrypt the ones with the slowest disk IO performance, and now you're hurting it even more. Um, But but that's not why Five Vault is evil. Five Vault is evil because of bugs. All right. So what's Uh, our what is our real topic then? All right. So our real topic, the one that you picked, is uh, what did you pick? A Mac OS X Lion. Yeah. What Uh, what we know about Lion? Where we're going as a direction? Yeah. You you you, so here's the thing. I asked you. I said, well, do you have any? special insight on this can you can you share any secrets do you know anything and you said no i i don't know anything well i have no i have no inside info no sources uh you know or telling me stuff and even if they did i wouldn't be sharing them because it's generally not my mo uh but i've seen the same things everyone else has seen and i'm basically just making educated guesses At, at this point i feel like when apple does any sort of announcement or something that communicates something in the subtext of it, I'm very receptive to it. I get it right away. I understand where they're going, and it makes sense in the context of what they're what the company is going to do. Whereas I see in a lot of the the non Apple specific press, they get confused by Apple's PR. They either take it at face value or they don't see the subtext. Or yeah, so, give us an they, example of denial what, about what are you talking about? Well, I don't know. I, I guess for. For Lion, the example would be uh, so they did that that preview thing of Lion. Do you remember that back in October? Yeah, sure do. With the the new launcher and things like that. Yeah, and that, that, that show was actually about I think it was about the new version of iLife and a bunch of other stuff. But like it was the back to the Mac show, and in the in the middle of that show, they had a whole thing about uh, let's show you a preview of Lion. And in the press, the, the the mainstream press covering that, like the New York Times or whatever, they mentioned everything that happened. They focused a little bit more on, you know, iLife because that was kind of the, the front of the show. And then when they talked about Lion, they basically just described what was shown and parroted back Apple's message about it, um, which was, you know, back to the Mac was their pun on we're taking the innovations that we put in iOS and bringing those back to the Mac. Um, and that was a misdirect because people thought back to the Mac meant back to Apple talking about the Mac. But there was a double meaning. The second meaning was Apple taking technology from iOS and bringing it back to the Mac. So there was a little bit of talk about, you know, Mac OS X and iOS converging and stuff like that. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't covered that much. But when I saw this show, the message I got loud and clear was Apple was describing exactly 
what their thoughts were for the future of the desktop op- operating system. And they were doing it in their typical way where they give you a tiny little taste and don't shock you and don't scare people. But they signal their intent pretty loud and clear to anybody who's been following the company for a while. So uh, I'll, like I did with the backup thing, I'll start with my thesis for Lion. Um, and it's in the form of an SAT type analogy. I think I actually posted this to Twitter. So anybody who follows me has already heard this. So sorry for the repeat, but I will expand on it here. Um, and the analogy, you, you know, those SAT analogies, it's like X is to Y as A is to B. Sure. So my analogy is iOS is to Mac OS 10 as the original Mac operating system is to MS-DOS. Okay. I can go along with that. And I, I don't, I posted that on Twitter and people either disagreed, thought I was crazy or ignored it. But I, 100% after seeing that line preview, I think this is exactly how Apple, the company, sees their operating system. So, uh, let me go back through and review the analogy. So, yeah. it's iOS is to Mac OS 10, saying like iOS is the you know nicer, simpler, easier to use thing, and Mac OS 10 is the harder thing. Is you know as the original operating system, Mac operating system is a DOS, and it seems extreme because DOS was this ridiculous command line thing with a little green text on a black screen, and you had to know the commands, and normal people couldn't use it. And the original Mac operating system was. It introduced the mouse. It was the, the first commercially successful GUI. It was just such a huge radical change. Whereas if you look at iOS and Mac OS X, you, know, that's not, you might say that's not the, an appropriate analogy. The difference between those two operating systems is not as big as the difference between Mac and DOS. Right. They look the same. They both use GUIs. They have buttons and scroll bars and widgets or whatever. It's not so much about you know, the revolution in technology being equivalent. It's how Apple thinks about it. And when Apple thought about DOS or any command line stuff, they said, this is not how computers should work. There's too much stuff that's not important, that's all, that, that, that gets in the way of regular person using this device. And we're going to eliminate a lot of those things and make it so that you need to know less to get your work done, to be successful at using this product. A thinking and, man's analogy. Yeah, and, and so with iOS... It's like them saying, well, Mac OS X is great and everything, and it's, it's a really good operating system, and it's, it's certainly much better than DOS was or, or better than any of the existing GUIs, but there's still too much stuff that you have to know about that's not important to your work that you just have to know about to use the tool. And iOS, I think, was their attempt to say, how much of that stuff can we remove and still leave a useful computer? So let's take out everything that we can that only exists because of, you know legacy of uh, of development over decades and just leave the stuff that lets you do the functionality uh, that lets you get your job done and that's what they did with ios and so that philosophy is is going to determine the future of mac os 10 that philosophy is going to say all right we, we've got ios which has shown we can take out tons and tons of things that you had to know how to use to, to had to know how to do to use a mac and still have a useful product in the end so now their job with mac os 10 is to try to get rid of as many of those things that they've seen that you don't really need to get work done, get rid of those from Mac OS X. And that's what this presentation was about. And it just mentioned one or two or three little things, so it didn't seem like that big of a deal. But I truly believe that Apple's goal with Mac OS X is to eliminate all those things that are not important, that are, that are baggage, that are noise to, to getting your job done. And so in the presentation, they gave like this little bullet list of, of the features they were bringing from iOS to Mac OS X. So they, they phrased it a different way. They said, we're, we're taking features from iOS and bringing them to Mac OS X. I think that's putting in reverse, and I think their real goal here is to make Mac OS X 
as noise-free as iOS. So mm-hmm. they're actually removing things that you needed to know about before and trying to make it so you don't need to know about them now. And they, they phrase it in terms of adding a feature. So they listed uh, multi-touch, the App Store, app home screens, full-screen apps, autosave, and apps that resume when launched. And that sounds like a hodgepodge of weird iOS features, but each one of them is like trying to eliminate something for Mac OS X. Uh, the App Store is an easy one. We've already seen the Mac App Store. We know what it is. It came ahead of line. It's not part of the operating system. It's uh, a separate feature now of, of uh, Snow Leopard. And it's clear what that's getting rid of. The act of uh, downloading, installing, and updating applications is just noise. Like we saw, they saw on iOS, this stuff with the DMGs. Disk images are awesome. They're certainly better than, than un- expanding zip files or stuff at expander files or all these other ridiculous things. So DMGs were in advance, but that's still too much noise. They don't, people don't want to understand about mounting disk images and dragging things off or running an installer sometimes and how do I you know, update the application. Well, Sparkle helped that where you had the update from within the application, but that was hit or miss. And it was a third-party thing. So Apple said, we've seen that if you make downloading, buying, downloading, and installing and updating applications really easy, way more people will do it. Right. So let's get rid of that noise from Mac OS X. So they phrase it in terms of adding the App Store, but what they're trying to eliminate is all of that stuff, mm. which they feel like is not, it's not important to the experience. Okay, you're, you're starting to sell me on this now. Um, so... I don't want to go too much more into the Mac App Store because we've heard all about it, but yeah. that's their first elimination. The multi-touch gestures, that seems like a, a straight pullover, but Mac OS X has already had multi-touch gestures. What they're trying to get out there is remove visible controls and make it so that, you know, invisible controls. So, like, for example, there's no visible scroll bars in iOS. And somehow, the that you know, it still works because, you know, it, it turns out that just touching and dragging is way easier than having a visible scroll bar. And, and the scroll thumb does appear to give you some feedback about where you are on the document. But there's something that's traditionally been in Mac OS X. You can say, we're eliminating scroll bars. That's not going to fly, right? Right. Well, But what they're doing instead is saying, all right, for, for the new features that we're going to add are from some existing features that didn't have visible controls like initiating expose or switching applications or showing the desktop or going to dashboard or something like that. Those always had some sort of either key combination or you hit a function key or you hit a screen corner. All those things are not as friendly Apple feels as gestures. And they, they feel like iOS has proved that to them, that screen corners are dangerous. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone who's not a, uh, a, an expert computer user accidentally trigger a screen corner thing and like all their windows fly off <laughs> right. and it shows a desktop. Right. I cannot enable that feature on all of my family's computers because they just accidentally triggered all the time and it freaks them out. Right, so as convenient as that is for people who are used to it, it's not novice friendly. Function keys, forget it. They'll never remember that F9 is expose and F10 is show dashboard. Or even though on the Apple keyboard they have little pictures that are trying to help you, like yeah. the little dial thing yeah. for dashboard, it's still not friendly. But gestures have a sort of I forget what the word is it for like kinesthetic or something. Like yeah. when you when you make motions with your with your body, you're able to remember them better than you know remembering words or uh, positioning something or putting. Some, pressing a screen element or something. I still think they'll be difficult for people to learn, but I think iOS has shown that they're more likely to stick if someone does make the effort to try it two or three or four times. Um, They do have the problem of you're running out of places to rub your fingers. Certainly you're not going to rub them on the screen, but they do have that that trackpad that you can buy for desktop Macs now. I have that. People who are into that can definitely use that. Yeah. I'm afraid most people will not buy that. Yeah. They do all their mice now have a place for you to swipe with your fingers. I'm also afraid that's a little bit of an ergonomic problem. It is. I have that uh, too. But but it's clear that Apple wants to 
they, they realize they can't completely eliminate on-screen controls from a Mac OS X, but they want any new features to always have this way to do it as well because they think it might do better than all the existing methods. I don't know how successful they'll be until they start doing some sort of hybrid touchscreen uh, you know, Mac thing with the horizontal touchscreen instead of just the trackpad or whatever, but that's the direction they're going. Is They, they, they really want that. They, they like the idea of eliminating, taking things off the screen and putting them into the muscle memory of the user. Um, full screen apps is similar in that it's not an addition of something, it's an elimination. Like, let's get rid of the menu bar, let's get rid of the dock, let's get rid of all these overlapping windows. You're probably just doing one thing at a time, especially if you're not a sophisticated user, you just want to do one thing. Certainly, iOS and the iPad have shown that it's perfectly possible to have a reasonable experience doing that, especially with the multitasking. Well, we have a lot more horsepower on the desktop, so let's try that. Let's encourage people to make full screen applications. Uh, and they tried to add, they're trying to add features to make full screen applications not as annoying. Because if you're in a full screen application now, you're like, I'm, I'm stuck here. What if I want to go over to some other application and do something briefly? I got to go out of full screen mode, right. go to the other application, do the thing I wanted to do, come back here and come back into full screen mode. Uh, and sometimes you can alt tab around when you're in full screen mode, but it's confusing and it's not easy to keep straight with all the other overlapping windows. So they're trying to make that easier by adding features to let you send apps full screen and then have them sort of cordoned off in there and in, in the UI uh, into a different category. So you have your regular desktop, which all your overlapping windows, and then each full screen application is itself shown as a big tile in their little new expose type thing. And then dashboard is another tile. So it's like three categories of things. Uh, dashboard, the desktop with all your routing windows, and then one little tile for every full screen application. You can switch between them using a gesture, and I would assume also using Alt-Tab, and they stay full screen, and you shuffle between them sort of like you shuffle between iPad applications. Um, so they're trying to make that experience easier for developers to do. Uh, they didn't say much about autosave and apps resuming when launched. I'm assuming they'll be just either better APIs for developers to do that or simply just encouraging developers at WWDC that this is going to be the new status quo and a good Mac application should do this. And again, that's trying to eliminate something that's historically been there. The file save menu, save as, all that stuff. It's not going away, but they've seen that in iOS it's possible to have a close-to-desktop type experience, like for example on the iPad, without bothering the user ever about saving. You know, There's no menu bar, there's no save, right. and somehow applications, certain classes of applications work. It's really difficult to do because desktop users are just used to that. They're like, well, you know, sometimes I don't want to autosave. And in fact, even on the iPad, I bet people have been kind of screwed by autosave. They're like, oh, really, I didn't want to do that. I didn't realize it was going to save. I'd, I'd like to go back to my previous version. You know, they want it to be explicit because they want to be able to experiment. And as long as they don't save, they haven't really ruined anything. So there's still a tension between those two features. But I think iOS has conclusively shown that the balance is swinging heavily in favor of autosave being what normal people uh, uh, can use successfully versus save. I mean, you know the people have been sitting in front of a computer for three hours and they haven't saved. You come in and say, oh, oh what you writing? I'm working on my novel. Have you saved yet? I always ask people, yeah. that, have you saved? They say, no, I guess I'll wait till I'm done. It's like, please, save. Save every few paragraphs. Save early, save often. They just don't do it. I mean, I think I, I guess what what's in the back of people's mind when it comes to saving is they don't they feel like well, what if I want to change it? How do I get it back? You know, uh, and I think incremental saving, saving with revisions, is something that like Google Docs will do, for example. So if if you had that, people's fear would go away completely, and I think you'd convert everybody. Well, that's more of a geek feature. I think if you just 
if you just change expectations, like the generation of kids that grows up now with iOS just expects autosaving all the time, they won't sort of know what they're missing. Right. Versioning should be there just because for the nerds, it's there. And like if, if some person is having trouble with their computer, uh, a tech savvy person can help them and say, oh, you may not know about this feature, but in fact, it's actually saving your revisions and you can go back several versions. Like if you show someone Dropbox and you just give it to them, they use it for a while and they and they call you up and they oh, I lost some changes, whatever. Then you can show them the Dropbox feature of getting back previous revisions. But up to that point, they don't need to know that Dropbox is doing that for them. So I don't think versioning were it to be an integral part of this necessarily needs to be in people's faces, but I do think it should be added there eventually yeah. just so there's an escape hatch for, you know, when you do need help, your data is there somewhere. Uh, so let's see what else they had there. Oh, and Launchpad is kind of part of the, the Mac App Store thing in that uh, iOS has shown that uh, if you shove the applications in people's faces, they'll use them and remember they exist. Whereas if you buried in the applications folder in Mac OS X, you know, even if you made application installation easy, people forget things exist there. If it's not in their dock, they don't realize it's there. And when they want to launch something, especially if it's not in their dock, they got to dig for it. It's, it's an upsetting experience. Whereas iOS just said, look, we're going to put every application you have in a series of screens and a big flat grid of icons, not, not even any sort of nesting for, you know, for years. And so now you know where all your applications are. You know how to change screens with, uh, with a reasonably uh, natural gesture that once you do it, once you remember it forever. Uh, and that works. People buy applications. They use them. Uh, in, in huge numbers, much greater numbers than people were buying or using Mac applications. So that's what they're doing with, with Mac OS X, is saying, wow, we, we've learned that we don't need to have this huge drop-off after the dock. Because that, that was the problem with Mac OS X. If the application is not in the dock, your next option is the finder. And the conceptual gap between a single line of, of gigantic icons on the bottom of your screen that you can't hide with Windows and the Finder, which is a navigation tool for your entire huge hard drive structure, there's a huge gap between those two things. And that's why people, once they go off the cliff of the dock, they don't want, they don't want to go to that Finder. They don't, they don't want to navigate. They're not sure they're in the right place. They don't know where they are. They have no conception of the file system hierarchy. It's just a big, scary uh, place to go. And that's why you see people with tons of icons in their dock, because they say, well, I always know where the dock is. It's always on top. You can't hide it with any other windows. It doesn't, you know, have any hierarchy if people just drag things to their, you know, they just see their icons, they click on them. Even if they're little tiny icons, they can eventually find it. Are you a uh, fan so, of the dock, John? Not really. Where is your dock? Uh, my, it depends on the computer. On a laptop, it's on the right side because the screens are smaller it's, and it's pinned to the bottom because I want to get it out of the way. On my desktop, it is actually on the bottom. Um, but Do you I have, have it drag pinned thing. when it's on the desktop. Is it pinned? No, uh, I keep I keep it centered. I have two other drag thing docs. I don't put any folders or files in in my uh, dock. The only reason I have my dock visible at all is because the notification API, the thing that makes the little thing bounce, right, and puts the little badges yep. on the icons. That API is not available for third parties. If it was, the drag thing would incorporate it, and I would never have the dock visible. But as things stand, I need to see when the icons bounce. I need to see when the little message appears on uh, a little badge appears on my icons. And the dock is the only application that can do that, so it has to be visible. So I have it visible, and it's, it's on the bottom of my screen, and that's what I use it for. It's kind of disappointing, but for regular users, it's the simplification of the dock is a, a big, big benefit. Uh, and Launchpad is trying to bridge that gap between the simplified dock that can hold a few icons that you use a lot and the, the scary world of the finder by saying as in iOS now when you want to launch any application and click on launch pad which will be one icon on your dock 
and we will show you all your applications in a gigantic grid of little icons that is very familiar to anyone who's used iOS. And so now there's not, you know, there's another reason people don't need to go to the file system anymore. You can have your most frequently used icons, applications in the dock, and then go to Launchpad for everything else. And it will literally show you all your applications. And you won't have trouble finding things. I bet you'll probably be able to sort it alphabetically or something. You know, people will be able to find stuff. If they can't, they'll just do like they do on their phones and just flick, flick until they see it and click. And I think that will eliminate a lot of the anxiety about uh, where your applications are. And, uh, you know, it'll eliminate the problem of people forgetting that they even have a certain application by always putting them right in their face. Um, and this is uh, another thing from iOS. And what is it taking away? Is it taking away the finder? The finder will still be there. They're just trying to make it so that you don't have to use it. This, you know, this thing. You don't have to know about the file system in yet one more way. Uh, and it was kind of sad that you'd have to know about you'd have to know about the the finder for installing applications to deal with the disk images and finding where your downloads went to, and you'd have to know about the finder for launching the application if it didn't fit in your dock. Um, so I think that's what Apple's move is with the uh, with that launchpad thing. And they also have this mission control thing, which is trying to unify. They claim it unifies expose dashboard spaces yeah, and yeah, screens. Yeah. But it's kind of sad that they're saying it unifies spaces. What it does is it eliminates spaces, right. which never worked right anyway. And, and it had lots of bugs. But the people who use spaces are going to be disappointed because spaces is just gone. You know. Well, but you know, before there was spaces, John, there were applications that you could download that would let you have that essentially that X, that functionality, which, again, really does come from the X Windows system. I mean, it's it's something that the Unix geeks have had for decades, perhaps, and those apps I think may still exist and I'm sure they'll they'll come back as soon as Apple takes it away, won't they? Maybe, but those apps didn't work great either. No, huh? they didn't. And and that the problem that people would have is different applications didn't behave consistently uh in, in spaces. So you might have one app that that works when you set it to be sticky and another app that doesn't work when you set it to be sticky and uh, just the behavior just was never satisfactory. I think for for people who really wanted to get a lot of, of use out of this, I was actually shocked that they added it to the operating system because of all the features. Like this is clearly an expert type feature. Like very few people have the discipline and experience to arrange their workspaces or multiple desktops and anything in X and BOS or any operating system that, that you know, semi-natively supported this. It takes a lot of discipline to arrange separate workspaces and remember where everything is and to be able to move things between them. Because if you just turn on spaces for a regular user, they will end. It's, it's like a cruel trick. You're, you're putting all their applications in a maze and they're like, where was that window? Oh, maybe it was in that other space. And maybe it's in this space. Maybe I'll drag this window back up. They end up with things scattered all over the place. So all you're doing is, is adding another layer of obfuscation. But people who use this feature and are, you know, it's part of their workflow have a system, basically. You know, of, they, they decide this is how I'm going to do it. Either work is here and play is here. Or you know, this is for monitoring uh, you know, servers and this is for doing code. Or my ID window is here. My simulator desk space is here. And this is for web browser. Like, so everyone has a system who uses this type of thing. But the number of people who have that system and who can successfully use spaces, even if it works great, is probably like a fraction of a percent of all you know, computer users. So I was always amazed that they added this feature, but I was not surprised that a, it was buggy, and B, that those bugs never really worked themselves out because it would take a tremendous amount of effort to make spaces bug-free and to get application developers to code in a spaces-savvy way. And this would all be for a fraction of a percent of users. So there was never going to be 
the motivation within Apple and developer relations and application developers in general to ensure that Spaces is a seamless experience just for that tiny percentage of users. So now it's basically going away and being replaced by this this new hierarchy, which is you know dashboard, all your overlapping windows, and all your full screen apps in different categories. Um, it remains to be seen how it works out. They have they have simplified it into that single screen, and I think that single screen arrangement does kind of make some sense. But it's kind of weird that. They do it with four, in the demo they had four, they do it with four big tiles on top. Dashboard, all your overlapping windows, and they had two full screen apps in the demo. Um, and I assume if you had more full screen apps, they would slowly fill that top part. Uh, and then the, the bottom part of the window is all your windows grouped by application. Not including the full screen ones, I believe. I'm not sure if users will immediately grok the new arrangement versus the existing expose one where you say just show me every single one of my windows in a big hairy mess and i'll figure it out but we'll see that i mean they keep rearranging those screens i don't think they really hit on the perfect one i think what they would like to do is like an ios where it's completely simplified and you just you know every application is full screen and you switch among them in, in a, a visually obvious manner with the gesture or changing to you know you're using the application switcher and it's clear when you're going from one application to another and it's just one big flat list. I don't think you can get away with that on machines that can have like 16 gigs of memory. Yeah. Tons of overlapping windows. But I think they, they consider that legacy noise and they would get rid of it if they could. So they're trying to herd towards that by saying we're going to give full screen applications their own place of prominence as separate entities. And all those other old applications will be represented by a single icon called your desktop on the top of the screen. And your desktop shows your desktop you know, not your just the finder, but all of your overlapping windows in that big mess, it's one icon. That's like the legacy bin and then all the full screen ones. I, I don't think this is going to fly, but the demo was clear signal that saying, you know, hey guys, wouldn't it be great if that little legacy bin didn't have your app in it and it got its own nice full screen icon on the top so they could switch to your application more easily? Uh, that was that was the subtext of that demo. Mm. So, so that's why I think uh, seeing that demo, they didn't demonstrate much technology-wise. They didn't talk about underpinnings. I think it was all about them expressing how much they love iOS uh, as compared to macOS 10 and how much they view macOS 10 now as the DOS, like the, the, the unfriendly, you need to know too much stuff, computer experts required to operate it, not for normal people operating system. And they're going to try to make macOS 10 and not like that anymore. They're going to try to bring it out of its uh, role as the DOS of the uh, the Apple world and make it more like iOS, which is their beautiful new uh, operating system that regular people can use. So, John, do you think that this is something that is uh, certainly a movement that they're going and they're saying this is this is the new direction? And in that sense, then if that's if that's true, is Lion then a transitional operating system, and the whatever comes after Lion becomes even even further down the iOS path. I think at least half the things they're trying to do in Lion to to make macOS ten less difficult to use and to eliminate those legacy things. I think at least half of them are going to fail or not come off the way they want it to. Yeah, just because it's it's a tough thing to do. Like for example, when Apple made the original Mac operating system. They didn't start with the Apple II operating system and try to file off the sharp edges. Right. Say, okay, well, it's like Apple II, but you don't need to know like the commands to, to load things from floppy disks. We'll, we'll have like a button you can press. For no, they just they start over from scratch, and it's always much easier to do that. And with iOS, uh, not technologically in terms of the underpinnings, but with the UI, they start over from scratch. They didn't say, let's take the Finder, 
put it on this phone. Okay, now let's just figure out how to, to make it nice. Maybe we'll use like launcher or button view or something in the finder and then we'll, we'll have a mode where the scroll bars don't, you know, they just started clean slate. Springboard is just a grid of icons and it has no relation to anything you've ever seen on the Mac. Uh, you know, all the, the apps are full screen. There's no windows anywhere. It's so much easier to do that. So now they're faced with the task of taking an existing thing and trying to file all the sharp edges and it's really, really hard and it's a long, long, long road and some, some things you can't file off because you know, otherwise, why have Macs at all? Obviously, iOS devices are not sufficient for all of our needs because at a certain point, you need multiple windows. You need to be looking at more than one thing at once. You need these persnickety little controls to do certain types of tasks. And the mouse is not a finger, and it has disadvantages versus a finger, but especially for Xavier users, it has advantages. So they can't file everything off. And I think a lot of their failures are going to come from attempting to go... Uh, a bridge too far uh, with one particular aspect of the system. So, for example, full-screen apps, I don't think they're going to get the buy-in from developers that they would really want out of that. Um, Or if they do, I think they'll see some resistance to users because if it's not completely consistent like it is on iOS, if everything isn't full-screen, then you've got this weird hybrid and people find it off-putting or I think are going to find it off-putting where you can switch among applications without getting out of full-screen mode, but some of the apps are in full-screen mode and some of them are not and you're, you're going to get into the situation where you're like, well, I liked it better. This UI is nice, but I'd like to be able to also peek at this other thing over here or drag from, you know, iPhoto into this other application. But when iPhoto is full screen, I can't drag for it. But I used to be able to when I didn't have it in full screen mode. So let me get iPhoto out of full screen mode. And let me, you know, it's, it's a tough hybrid. And I think that's going to be a hard sell. And I'm not sure what the, what the eventual result will be. Some of them are, are no-brainer wins, though. Like getting, getting rid of uh, application installation woes. Yeah. That, that's, that's just and a, you, you a were universal. Saying, John, you were telling me that you actually think that that's, that's going to improve even further in line than the way that it is right now with the App Store in, in uh, 10.6, 10.5. I right? hope. Like yeah. what I was really hoping for with the Mac App Store was was, you know, an uninstall. You know, like on, on iOS, hold your finger down on the button and hit the close box, <laughs> and then the application is uninstalled. And they just didn't do uninstall. They just didn't do it, period, in, right. in the Mac App Store as it exists in Snow Leopard. And that was a big disappointment because people are used to that from iOS. Oh, I'm tired of this game. Hold down the button, hit the thing, and it's deleted. Or maybe they can delete it from iTunes. But the point is, it's easy enough for a regular person to do. Regular people get bored of an application, and they delete it, and they have no problem with it. On the Mac... They're either afraid to, they don't know how to, maybe they drag it to the trash, maybe they try to dra- grab the icon from the dock and drag it to the trash. Have you seen people do that? Yeah. And you might argue, well, that should work, and why doesn't it? But then you're saying, well, should that really work? Maybe it shouldn't work. or, you know. But you've got this application, this one central place to do this stuff, the Mac App Store. If it had an uninstall option, a screen that showed all your installed applications had a big button that said uninstall this application, surely Apple can pull that off because they're controlling the installation 100%. They can, in theory, track wherever they put every single file and remove them. You know, that's it's up to them. They control the horizontal and the vertical here. So, well, it's it's funny because if well, if you think about the way that you that you install and delete apps on on iOS, like you mentioned, you know, there's one way to install them, and there's one simple way to delete them. Uh, that my three year old son, by the way, knows how to delete apps. Thank you. Um, and, and I I say that because maybe they made it too easy. I don't always want him to delete apps, but he can. And it's simple enough to do. But, you know, my uh, master's educated uh, college professor mom doesn't always know how to delete apps from macOS 10. And 
it's it's fascinating to me the difference there in that it's so easy that literally a child can do it on iOS and that uh, somebody who's computer savvy and has many years of computing experience might not always know how they're supposed to delete something. It's just, it's fascinating. And what what I think at the same time is that I, I don't know if I would like it if Apple were to, lo- you know, on, on iOS, where where are my applications stored? Well, I don't know. They're just right here on the screen and I, I tap it and it launches the app, right? But where do those files exist? Where does the app exist? Well, I don't know. Well, if you told me that I wouldn't know and be able to know on, on a regular computer, I would be like, you're crazy. I have to know. I have to know where it is. You know, I have to know that it's in the applications folder, which is at the root. You know, like I would have to know that. Or I can I can make an applications folder within my user directory and it'll be a magic application folder and I can launch things from there and put that into the dock because I want it in the dock. And then I can decide whether it's displayed as a folder. All of these things are, are, are things that geeks like to do. It almost seems, though, like the people who like doing things like that on a computer would be very disappointed with something that was dumbed down, if you will. Uh, and, and the flip side of that is the people who, who are coming up now who are content with an iPad as perhaps their main portable computer might like that kind of thing on, on the Mac, if you will. Well, I think that's, a, that's usually a false choice, especially on a desktop. Uh, the best user-friendly features are built on, on a foundation of a series of layers, each of which is comprehensible at that level. So what you'd want to do to build like a really easy, you know, like a Mac App Store thing where you just click a button to install and uninstall, you wouldn't build that as a monolith. You wouldn't build it as a big application that does fancy stuff that you don't know about and there's one interface to it. You'd build it on a stack of other technologies. So at the very bottom, you'd have the operating system, then the file system, then a package management system, then, you know, a nice GUI for that looks at the file system, then a nice GUI for the package management system, and then maybe the command line interfaces to both of those things, and there'd be a single shared library that they both use. And on the very tippy top of this nice stack of things, each of which has a public interface mm-hmm. that you can use if you're interested in it, that's where you put the icing of, here's the nice, nice easy UI that everyone will use. But for the people who want to go beyond that, you don't want them to peek under the covers and just see a big jumble of wires. You want them to see a nice series of modules. And Mac OS X mostly does that. Uh, if they had a decent package management system that was native instead of the current installer that can't even uninstall, that would be accessible. And you can imagine them making a GUI tool and utilities that that just uh, interface with that system. And then, of course, there's the finder, and then there's the command line. Like, there's a stack of comprehensible technologies underneath there. And unlike on iOS, where they hide all that stuff because of the ridiculous, you know, jailbreaking uh, Apple control freak thing uh, where they just don't want anyone messing with it, that's not going to fly on, on a general purpose computer. You just have to give that kind of control to certain classes of people. And even if it was like iOS and locked down by default, you know, this, the settings and defaults and interface you provide to people doesn't define the destiny of that product. It just defines what most people will use it for. As long as everything else is still under there, under the covers, and unlockable in a non, you know, you're going against the Apple way, illegal DRM cracking, jailbreaking, ridiculous stuff. As long as it's available simply by... Uh, you knowing what to click and 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 tolling your way down, I think that's perfectly acceptable, and I think that's actually desirable. And Mac OS X does that to an amazing degree, which is why we all love it so much. Is that it's got because everybody, even if you're an expert, sometimes you just want to use the nice GUI. Sometimes you don't want to fiddle with things and, sure. and compile everything from source or whatever. So we love that there's a nice GUI there, but we love that also we can peel away that layer and there's something a little bit closer. We can go, we can instead of using the dock, we can use the finder, and then. We can go a little bit closer. We can use the terminal. And you want to go closer to that? Start writing C programs against the BSD APIs. Like, it's all there for you to 
for you to use at whatever level you feel comfortable with. All Apple is doing, as far as I can tell so, uh, right now, is trying to build up the layers, make them as robust as possible, and start putting and keep putting better and better icing on the top so that people don't have to know about this stuff. I don't think there's any any signaling from anywhere inside Apple or out or any demo they've done that says that on the desktop that they want to take away those layers. If anything, they revel in those layers. Like WWDC sessions, they have sessions on every possible layer of that of the technology stack, and you just go to whatever session is appropriate to you. They're not trying to hide it from you. They're not doing like what they do in iOS, which is saying, you can't use the low-level APIs. You yeah. can only use the Cocoa APIs. Everything else, you know, just stay away from it. Uh, they're they're saying, look, make the application that you need to make. Here is this huge stack of technologies we have, or whatever layer is appropriate to you, make your app at that layer. And to users, they seem to be saying the same thing. So here we are an hour later. Yeah. Well, this is about the time when my microphone usually goes bad, too. <laughs> I got a one-hour lifetime on this microphone, and then it starts to fuzz out. But so far, so good. So what do you, what do you think, John? I mean, what, what does this mean, then, for... For those of us who are here, it just sounds like it sounds like you're painting a pretty positive picture. So everything I've seen so far is has made me optimistic. Now, granted, the the ship date they say for Lion is summer 2011, and we haven't seen anything about it since that demo. That bothers me a little bit, just because I don't know what else they have in store. What if they're and waiting I, to announce something at MacWorld today? Uh-huh. I don't. I'd really doubt that. Right. I, I would expect like dev builds, right? You know, uh, developer release one of Lion that doesn't even have half the features they demoed in that preview, but it's just for people to get their applications ready. Like, I, I would like to know what they're doing under the covers, uh, the internals. That's a whole other topic we might save for a different show. But I, I really don't know any more than they've shown, and what they've shown has has signaled to me their sort of their vision, their mission statement for the desktop operating system. It, what it doesn't tell me is all the little steps they're going to do to get there and where they're going to go wrong and where they're going to have blind eyes and how many different versions of the operating system it's going to take for them to get there. That is still uncertain. But I think with Apple, it's important to know where they think they want to go because then you can see all their other actions in that context and you can see well, why are they doing this thing or, you know, and how are they going to judge their own success for the particular feature? What are they going to consider uh, this feature turned out well, let's do more of that or let's do less of you know, this other thing? I think understanding their vision, the vision they've articulated so far, uh, is important for that. It also would help you to understand, for example, why, why, for example, iPhoto in the new version of iLife is so horrible. Yeah. I think it's bad because they were trying to get closer to the iOS ideal, and they were failing in a whole bunch of interesting ways. Um, so they, they took away features that they thought were just noise, but the people actually needed they tried to make it friendlier and more iOS-like with attractive graphics and stuff, uh, but ended up making functionality that people used be farther away in terms of number of clicks. Uh, it just made the experience worse for people who were ex- experts at using that particular application. And they also made it slower and a little bit more bloated. And anytime you make a program slower with subsequent revisions, people get angry. This is the danger of, of trying to make things more iOS-like. If you go from zero to iOS, people like it. If you go from macOS 10 to iOS, people complain. Wow. That's a great, that's a great quote. And that's, that's going to be their problem. You're today. That's going to be their problem. Their problem is going to be that in their eyes, they made a better application, but people now know what they're missing. People have been using a particular feature for a long time, and when it goes away, they're upset. Uh, now, I don't know if you're going to say like 
they made i they made iPhoto 11 worse in ways that have to do with performance and stuff like that. That's unarguable. You can say when you make the program slower, it's just worse. Period. No argument about that. But you can have a reasonable argument about the new iPhoto actually being better because it removes those features that people are angry about missing. You can say, well, you may be angry about it because you used to do it a certain way. But people who never used this program before will like the new version better because we've eliminated choices and it's not as confusing to them. That's the, the, the struggle they're going to have to go through. They can either wait for all of the people who are used to those features to die <laughs> and then <laughs> not worry about it. Yeah, bring up the next or, generation right. Or they, they can just figure out how to strike the correct balance. Like that's, They have to figure out the right balance between hiding features that were noise and making features that people use easier to use. Uh, when you combine it with adding bugs and going slower, you're never going to make friends. So iPhoto was kind of the perfect storm of a bad job trying to do this. But I think they'll learn from this. I think they'll learn from it in a similar way that they learned from, uh, what was that, uh, iMovie HD, the one that followed iMovie HD, iMovie 7 or 8? Yeah, when they had to basically, they, they dumbed it down and started over. Yeah, and they shipped the old version with it. Just right. so people wouldn't complain. They said, look, we know <laughs> we took out tons of stuff. You can still use the old version. It works fine here. We're going to give it to you on the disc. That's, that's a pretty big sign of you know failure where they're saying, we can't just ship this the way it is. We have to give them the old version too. Otherwise, they'll complain. Uh, the, the chat room said that was iMovie 8. Where they did yeah. that. I, wouldn't, the time, I, I wouldn't 9, mind if they did that with iPhoto this time around. I have stopped using it completely. Yeah, I, I would be angry because I'm still using iPhoto for that. But uh, by the time iMovie 9 came around, they'd, they add a lot of stuff back. They didn't include the old version anymore. The old version was still more capable in a lot of ways. But iMovie 9 is a better balance. So if they had come out with iMovie 9 originally instead of 8, you could say, well, okay, now that would have been a better compromise. So they learned from, from their mistakes and they made it better. So I really hope that iPhoto 12 strikes a better balance between simplifying the application and making it easier to use and still making it uh, a better program, faster, more capable, fewer bugs, and keeping the features that people had come to rely on. We should end right there. Sure. We're only, only eight minutes over today. Yeah, not bad. You've got to go back to work. We're pulling you away from your, your real job, but we want to thank uh, Sound Studio 4. Do you ever use Sound Studio to do your recording? Because you do a double-ender on that in comparable podcast. So if you want more, we should mention that. If you want more of, of John, uh, you don't talk about Mac stuff really over there much. Talk yeah, that's, that, that's the anti-Mac show because yeah. there's a bunch of Mac guys. Uh, Jason Snell uh, sort of runs the show uh, and he's the, the editor of Macworld and it's a bunch of other Macworld guys and me, but we do not talk about Mac stuff. So right. it's a refreshing change. Yeah. So you can go listen to that and uh, that's called the Incomparable podcast. Or the Incomparable, depending on how you want to pronounce it. How do you like, how should I say it? I think the word in English is incomparable. Okay. I don't know. The, I mean, every time I, I, I think I know a pronunciation of a word, I look it up in the dictionary, and both pronunciations are there. So that's you English know what I mean. I don't. I don't know. I'm, English is a second language for me. <laughs> yeah, you know, I say Ethernet instead of uh, Ethernet instead of Ethernet. So you do not say Ethernet. I've been known to say Ethernet. You couldn't even say it now. You you said the other way. I do. I've been reprogramming myself. Variable substitution. Well, you should. Well, we'll have a sh- whole show about GIF versus GIF later. Okay. Oh, yeah, you got to add that. Well, anyway, we want to say thanks to Sound Studio 4. 
go. You can find them at uh, in the Mac App Store. That's the place to buy. And see, that's a whole other conversation. Is how do you know where to buy it? If if you don't have if you don't have software right now, and now feels like a really dangerous time for me to register buy software because you don't know if you buy it this week, if next week it's going to be out in the, the App Store, and you're going to have to rebuy it. But you don't have to worry about that with Sound Studio because it's already in the App Store. So buy it there, Sound Studio, and thanks to Mailchimp.com for uh, for sponsoring. Right? Yep. No complaints from you. I believe I do have Sound Studio. I think I got it as one of those bundles. I have bought a couple of those bundles in years past. It's the one where the icon looks like kind of a ripply sand thing in a circle. Yeah, and your your audio is getting weird, but I won't. We'll leave it. We won't even edit it out. Uh, but yeah, it, it's 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 got uh, well the new the new logo is quite quite fresh. It's quite quite nice. It's a microphone with uh, with green sort of flying out. It's very cool. And but you get to go to the you just need to go to the app store and get the new one. All right. Well, anyway, uh, we'll be back next week noon Friday Eastern, and you can check out five by five TV to hear the other episodes that we've done here. You can hear some of the other shows that we do as well. And, uh, John, I want to tell you, you don't need to buy them. You get them for free. Uh, but the uh, the 5x5 t-shirt store just opened up today. There's no shirt for my show, though. Why would I want someone else's show? I want to send you the one of me with my Oh, the, the big head on it? Yeah. yeah the big, big Dan Benjamin Or just head. a 5x5 just a shirt. I think would be good, but we will do more. What I, I can I tell you my idea of what I'm? Well, no, I'm not going to tell you my because people then they won't buy the ones they have on now. Apple would never do that, so I won't either. That's right. Yeah, the, the current lineup of shirts is the best lineup of shirts five by five has ever had. That's true. So that's how. Say it. Yeah, that's what they would say. So we'll uh, we'll see y'all next week. Thanks and uh, have a good one. Bye.